Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. Well-being has moved to the center of our conversation, which as a chief well-being officer, I can only say that it's a good thing. But knowing we're stressed or burned out is different from being able to do something about it. So where do we start? How do we take action to improve our well-being? As my guest today says, the place to start is in our mindset and how we think about ourselves and how we define success. And by changing our mindsets, we can literally rewire our brains to help set us up for greater well-being and for true success. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Well-Being Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Joey Hubbard. Joey is the Chief Training Officer at Thrive Global. For over 30 years, he's been coaching and facilitating motivational seminars to help both employees and organizations improve their lives, their careers, and their businesses all over the world. Joey, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jen. I'm, I, I feel like this was a long time coming, so I'm excited to have this conversation to you. And I want to start, you know, you're someone who's been all over the world working with top corporations, with leaders, with employees across the board. So how would you describe this state of well-being generally over the past two and a half years and in the pandemic? And, and what are the biggest points of pain that you're now hearing? Well, I think there's a few. Uh, we know from research that looking at screens shuts down the prefrontal cortex, right? The smart decision-making element of our brain. And what have we had to do over the last two and a half years? And look at screens. Now, thank goodness, right? We were able to continue to function as a society, but it it really uh, pulled away our ability to, to focus, to be able to have sustained attention. And we're seeing that a lot of people also have this experience of, feeling like they weren't connected. Uh, A lot of people want to say the great resignation was more around uh, the idea that I want to go do the work I want to do and where I want to do it. And I think there's some value there, but I think it, it was more the lack of interaction and connection that we had diversity of connection that we had with each other. And that, you know, when we're with people, as you, as you know, we get the boost of oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, uh, endorphins, that being pulled out of the way we operated and then having to operate through a screen for the last two and a half years, I think caused people to feel disconnected, walk away from the jobs they did. Now we're seeing what I think is now more the great regret and in this experience of mental health challenges because their brains weren't being energized, revived, um, sustained by connection. So I think it has, it's had some significant effect and, and probably more so on young people than, than you know, people who were in their adulthood, but still uh, effect on all of us. Yeah, it's interesting. And what it makes me think of, I, I read an article recently actually about how 
the amount of time that we have spent on screens the past, you know, two and a half so or years has actually affected our ability to have meaningful relationships, even when we are in person, right? Because Mm -hmm. we've become so accustomed to our screens that actually being in person feels uncomfortable. (laughs) So can you talk a little bit about that? Because it feels like, I mean, it's, you know, this, the screens have made us feel disconnected, but then when we have the, the, the ability now and the opportunity to be in person, it's very uncomfortable for us. It is. And, and, and some of that is what I call muscle building, right? So we, mm. we, especially if you were an introvert, you lost the skill that you had developed of being uncomfortable and yet still reaching out and saying what you needed to say or, or starting a conversation or any of those things. Uh, you, you, you'd learned, you know, just through the course of your life, how to do that, even though it wasn't your natural you know, sort of style during the pandemic, not having to do that for two and a half years, you really see people who are more introverted struggle with now getting back into how do I, you know, engage with people in ways that are comfortable again. And so that's that there's a piece there. And then there's another piece, which is just a, a addiction that comes from looking at devices. Mm. They're designed to do that. That's yeah. the intentionality behind them. But Unfortunately, that addiction is not uh, easy to put away. And so if I've spent, again, two and a half years looking at devices, because it wasn't just the amount of time I was looking at my screen, it was also then spending an equal or even a greater amount of time in social media and my phone and and tablets, et cetera, that built our, in our brain, just just addicted to it. They're, they're, They're gauging 150 times a day we look at our phone, whether we need to or not. Right. So, right. you know, there's that boost to... that, you know, that little endorphin boost that, that comes from it, you know? And so which, which kind of endorphin boost is, is more powerful? The one that comes from our screens or the ones that, that comes from being in person with other people? <laughs> well, actually, I, th- I think the in-person one is much greater. They can see a, a live interaction that gives us the sense of connection and, and we get those boosts, they can see the effect of that three and a half months later in the brain. Wow. Wow. So while we get the the, the small boosts of, or right, from the immediate the screen, hit, yeah. Yes. Yeah. We get the longer, more effective boost from being with people. But as you said, that requires, you know, again, creating a comfort zone around that. And so for many clients, I've been telling them strategies around how do you get your people to show up at work? you know, have a fun event that is yeah. not necessarily work related, have everybody show up, give them a couple of weeks notice. They will have so much fun that they'll remember why they like being in person. And that's what you really want to do right now is create the memory or re- recreate the experience so they can remember why being together has value. Yeah, absolutely. We keep talking about how, you know, going when you go back to the office, you know, on, on those days that you do, it should be about the experience and not necessarily about sitting at a desk mm-hmm. and getting work done per That's se. Right. That's so, right. so let's kind of move to this topic of, of life work integration um, versus work life balance, which, you know, I see the language of work life balance still still gets used quite a bit. And and as you as you know, Ariana Huffington and I wrote about this and why we need to kind of move away from this idea of balance to 
integration. I, you know, so I guess from your perspective, talk to me about the idea of balance um, and what's wrong with it. But why are we or we're so kind of still wedded to that language or that idea of balance? Well, first of all, I loved your piece. I loved your personal reframe from work life to life work. Yeah. Because I think that is really the the key that we we you know we were really conditioned as humans to prioritize work, right? When you think about how we were conditioned for you know hundreds hundreds of years, it's been work first, then mm-hmm. family, right? In in that list of hierarchy, and one of the things that happened over the last few years is people got the chance to reverse that and see that they were around family more. And so they started to realize, wow, this is actually more important to me than my work. Yeah. But I was spending more time at work because I wanted to make sure my life was good. And then they started, well, do I have to spend this much time at work, you know, et cetera. What I'm realizing is life is all of it. It, it, yeah. There isn't there isn't a differentiation between what I'm doing at home, what I do at work in relationship to my life. It's all part of my life. And they have different values and they have different purposes and intentions. And if I could just see myself as having a good life, how do I live a life that I feel fulfilled by? They will have all kinds of elements in it. It'll have friendship. It'll have relationship. It'll have work. It'll have family. It'll have lots of elements that I consider valuable. And I think the key, the key for people now is to start to say, and, and it started, what is most valuable to me for my fulfillment? And then creating a life that matches that. Uh, we've talked a lot internally at Thrive about, we think part, one of the things that misses that's been missing is the inner wisdom element, right? Mm-hmm. The, the The personal time to get to know myself, to whether it's spiritual, whether it's religious, whether it's just my own meditative, contemplative experience of knowing myself, th- that piece has been greatly missing for, you know, in the last at least 20, 30 years in our society because we've we've downplayed that to prioritize, you know, the idea of making money. So how do we get all those things into a, you know, the circle of my life? And while I will never have balance because all those things are going to have different priorities. They're going to have different amount of time I can spend with them. Uh, they'll have different value set for me in terms of, you know, what I think is the most important part of my life. But I, I look at it from, a, if I got to the end of my life and I look back, I'd say, what are the things that I would have liked to make sure that I did and in, in what capacity and in what quantity? And as long as you can say, I'm mapping to that, that's all that matters. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I, we, we've heard that, you know, at the end of your life, are you going to wish that you spent more time at work? Or are you going to wish you spent more time with family or, or doing the things that, that, you know, really brought you a, a sense of joy and fulfillment? Not that, that work doesn't or shouldn't, but, um, you know, it shouldn't consume our life. But I think, you know, for me, I, I guess I'm getting older now. Perhaps we all are. <laughs> because that's the way it goes. But I feel like, you know, when I was younger, 
And I would hear something like that. Well, at the end of your life, you know, are you going to, what are you going to wish you spent more time doing? You know, it it always just felt like it was so far away. Well, I don't have to worry about that now. You know, I'm not, the end of my life isn't coming anytime soon. But then of course, for me, I got diagnosed with breast cancer at age 40 and that created a totally different perspective. But you know, I, I do think that there's something to the the framing of that. And maybe if it's not at the end of your life, but what is it that, you know, you wish you spent more time doing right now? You know, mm-hmm. like, what is it that that really, you know, lights you up and kind of brings you that that sense of joy? You know, another and I, I want to dig into, um, you know, what you talked about, about about kind of around spirituality and values. But one kind of myth that I want to get your thoughts on before we we go there is this this trade-off between high performance and taking care of ourselves that those two things are kind of mutually exclusive but now with the pandemic we've seen well-being kind of move to the top of the agenda not just for the workforce but for business leaders alike but do you still see this myth hanging on because i see a lot of talk about it <laughs> but are we really making progress towards you know this this notion of high performance you know in order to have sustained high performance you really need to take care of yourself and have a workforce that feels empowered to take care of themselves as well yeah i mean you've been a leader in this idea and and i i think we could say the positive effect for thrive during this time period is probably a 10 X in our business mm. because more and more organizations have realized that there are people I call it need to be well to lead well. Yeah. You know, we we've seen that when people are not well, it will lead to bad behavior will lead to, you know, attrition, absenteeism and lead to all the things that organizations uh, have found, you know, cause great disruption. And if you, if you want to have an organization that is performing at its best and, you know, my background in athletics has shown this over and over and over again, you know, when you people who are performing at their best, they are doing the things to make sure foundationally they are well, and it doesn't matter what field you're in, what, you know, what job you do, if you're not well, it will affect your ability to show up and be at your best. So now I think organizations who used to think, that was a soft skill or a soft idea have now pivoted to seeing the data, the research, the reality that if their people aren't well, then there is a, there's a deficit that will occur. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like they're taking action or meaningful action towards supporting that or changing that within their organizations or within their cultures and their I guess, leadership behaviors. I do. And I see it actually starting at the top quite a bit where organizations are realizing that the issue is, yes, their people are struggling, but that leadership has not created a culture where people can prioritize their well-being. And so we're seeing leaders now committing yeah. in many of our organizations. It has become a top-down process where they're saying, come in, help our leadership understand how they need to prioritize themselves and then how do they scale it within their teams. So there's been a significant uptick for us in terms of seeing organizations make that shift. 
That's awesome. I, I, I believe I'm, I'm seeing the same thing too. So I think it's a really positive shift. And I think that this kind of leads me into, you know, where I want to go with the conversation around mindset. Mm. Um, because I do think that what we're seeing and experiencing is a shift in mindset. You know, some of the things that we've been talking about, you know, at Deloitte is, you know, this shift that, you know, well-being, you know, be it a set of, you know, habits and activities and actions that we take, you know, yes, they improve our physical and mental health, but the historical mindset, if you will, is that it happened largely outside of work or outside of working hours, right? That organizations might provide you with the tools and resources and benefits to support these activities, but they aren't actually things that we do during the workday. Mm-hmm. Um, so to a shift of like, no, actually they need to be done in in certain ways during the workday because that's what allows us to to have this sustained high performance, right? That mm-hmm. and that and that doing meaningful work is actually an input to our well being, right? Good well being is an outcome of doing a job that feels good to us. <laughs> right. right. So I guess, you know, I said a lot there, but what is our mindset, you know, and kind of this shift in mindset have to do with our well-being? Well, there's, there's a lot you said there that, that I loved. Um, and and I, I want to put a pin in purpose, which I think was the last thing you said, which I think is, is important. But when we look at mindset, I mean, the thing we know about the brain is that there's a part of the brain, kind of the base of the skull, called the reticular activating system. And it regulates a lot of things, including sleep. But one of the things it does is it filters what we see, feel, and hear in the world based on what we believe. And so from, you know, Carol Dweck's book on mindsets to, you know, lots of research and studies on how the brain works and the neurology of the brain. What they're understanding is that it doesn't matter what the truth is. It doesn't matter what anybody says. What matters is what you believe, because what you believe will then be the filter with which you see the world. Mm. And as we've seen over the last, you know, several years here in the country, uh, we've seen completely opposite polarizing perspectives that are using the same data to have different kind of beliefs. And so what that means is it doesn't matter what the truth is. It matters what people believe because that's how they're going to, again, see, feel, and hear the data. So it becomes critical what you, what you believe. And so from all the work I've done in this field, what I've learned is that challenging your beliefs to really ask yourself, is this true? Having an open developmental mindset that says, uh, is there more for me to learn? Is there is there more for me to to do to grow? How can I continue to get better? It can be one of the more critical elements for you to continue to improve as you age. Uh, and so the challenge I think that most people are experiencing is that they they have this. There's no human being I've met that goes, I want to be wrong about what I believe, right? <laughs> so we want to be right about what we believe, but if what we believe isn't taking us in the direction we want to go in. Now we've got a challenge, and that's the challenge that we address uh, in terms of mindset is, is making sure where we want to go aligns with the belief system that we have, because without it, you will not get there. You will go in the direction of your belief, not the direction of where you say you want to go. So 
in particular, I want to hone in on kind of one, I you know, particular belief that our worth is tied to what we do, mm-hmm. um, you know, our mm-hmm. jobs. And so, and I think that that's true for many of us. I know it was for me and I never really challenged that belief. And I think, you know, in challenging that belief, I would have gone down the path of, you know, defining what success meant for myself. Um, mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I burned out <laughs> that, sure. that I gave myself the opportunity yeah. to do that. So beyond, you know, burning out, why is this, why is this a dangerous mindset to have? And what are some ways in which we can measure our success instead, or in addition to, because again, you and I have both talked about how it is important to have a meaningful career as an overall part of your life, but it's yeah. not the only thing. No, very important. And so, you know, this is the what I would call the human condition. We <laughs> we have this idea that gets really pushed from a pretty young age and depends upon our culture. There are a few cultures maybe that are left that aren't doing this, but for most cultures, pretty young age, you start getting conditioned in the idea that what I have and what I do determines my value. There are some cultures still that will tell you who you are is your value, but most cultures are driving the idea of what you have and what you do is your value. So if you look at TV, you're going to see everything saying the most important, valuable people are the people that have something or that are doing something. And so we get conditioned to say, I have to equate my value to those things. We lose as we talk back to the, the, the spirituality or the interconnection around recognizing that the kind of human I am is really where my value is. Mm-hmm. And if I am the kind of human that I want to be, I will naturally go out and do and have the things that align with my values. But most people reverse it. So instead of who I am determines what I do, which determines what I have. They approach it from what I have determines what I do, which determines who I am. And therefore, if what I have or what I do goes away, my identity is then greatly shaken because I it, it, it's it's defining who I am. Right. Versus if I understand who I am is my value. Then what I do can change and what I have can change, but my value doesn't change. Who I am doesn't change. Yes. So that's where the biggest challenge is for most human beings. Yeah. Because we do want to have and do, and there is tremendous value in making a difference through doing things and in creating the kind of things that make your life, your kid's life, your partner's spouse's lives, your community's lives better. Right. When you create a lot, you can, you can, impact a lot. But you just have to remember that if your values tied up in that, then what will happen is you won't prioritize self. You know, you won't you won't take time for yourself or for your family because you're going to say, no, I've got to keep stay up late and keep doing this project because if I do it right, they're going to like me. They're going to give me a promotion. I'm going to make more money and then I'm going to be more valuable. And that's what that's how people lose track of how they can actually take good care of themselves. They think it's if I have and if I do versus remembering that who they are is where their true value is. Yeah, Joey, where were you 10 years ago in my life when I really, (laughs) really needed you? (laughs) Not that I don't need you now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a human human condition. Everybody uh, goes through that cycle. 
yeah, yeah. So let's talk about, and you know, I think you're alluding to this a little bit, or it's a it's aligned to this. But one of the things I hear you talk about a lot is is limiting beliefs. Yeah. Um, so what are they, and can you give us a few examples of maybe some of the more common ones? Sure, sure. So this has been literally a thirty year journey for me, thirty two year journey of of understanding this whole dynamic I call paradigms. And uh, I started by really uncovering my own process around this. And then having worked with thousands and thousands of people in different environments, I was able to see how no matter where I was, what culture, what country, what language, I was seeing the same patterns over and over again. And they were these seven, eight pretty consistent uh, belief systems that, again, regardless of culture, were showing up. So idea number one was no matter what I do, it's never enough, right? Limiting belief. Number two was I am not enough, just a general belief of not not not, not enough. And there became a, a whole book written around this, around the imposter syndrome and, and how and why that works. It's got great, great data in that. Um, then ideas like I'm not valuable. I'm not worthy. Uh, I'm unlovable. Uh, I'm not safe. Those were the big ones that I found, regardless of who you were, that you were going to have some experience in your life that was going to trigger that belief. And that belief was going to keep operating in your head. And what I found was that no matter who I worked with, and I, I doesn't matter from billionaires to even working in prisons, I found those belief systems were common. Now, the difference was how much impact they had created in the person's life. So, for example, work with a billionaire who had a belief about not being good enough, but they had created so much in their life, wealth in particular and, and experiences, that it didn't dominate their life. It showed up very specifically in relationship to partners. And so we didn't stop their, their work, but it, it did affect their ability to really have the partner they wanted. And we worked with that. Whereas if, if, if in a prison, the idea that I'm not good enough was, was dominating that this person's belief system in such a way that they went out into the world and that's how they were interacting with the world. I'm not good enough. So not being good enough matched where they were. Of course, I'm in a prison because that's who I am. Right. So it's very it's very subtle, but the impact it can have depends on like how the person's life sort of begins to roll itself out. So, again, I've never met a person who didn't have one of those working. Uh, and yet the, the 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 depth of it, the breadth of it, the impact depended on the person. So that's why I would have. I'd get calls from sports teams. They'd say this person who had tremendous success, million dollar contracts, had gone out and done something really stupid. And when I would sit with them, it would always come up where this belief that I'm not worthy or I'm not valuable or whatever it was, was going on while they were doing this stupid behavior versus the other belief that they had carried most of their life about being the best in this particular sport had gotten them there. They didn't change the, the belief that was pulling them down. So it's like a potential anchor. Is the anchor small? Is it large? It depends on the person. Yeah. I'm, well, I guess, why is it so hard to kind of move from 
these negative beliefs to something that serves us so much better? So it, it depends on, you know, different people are able to move faster than others. But what I found is that everyone can move. That's the beauty mm. of neuroplasticity, that every brain, regardless of who, who you are, every brain has the capacity to go from a more limiting belief-based mindset to a more positive belief-based mindset. Every brain has that capacity. And so that's the great news. But if you ask about why the conditioning that occurs just growing up, regardless of who you can have perfect parents and go to school and have somebody be mean to you and you start to wonder if you're good enough and that that can stick and you can have moments over and over again where that happens. So no one's immune to the effects of life. And uh, unfortunately, there's lots of negative things that occur in life. They're not necessarily all, you know, life threatening or you know, emotionally shaking things, but they're, they're enough to give us pause and to start questioning who we are. And, and consequently, we, we end up with those belief systems. And, and then depending upon how aggressive we are about addressing it, um, we either keep them or we start to, to build a new mindset around, you know, I'm going to think differently about myself. And so is it true with neuroplasticity? Like, do or the way that our brain works, like, do we, and this is, this is what I was reflecting on or thinking about is, you know, do we like scan the environment or our world or words that people say to reinforce either a negative or a positive belief about ourselves, Right. And, and that kind of reinforces the wiring in our brains. And so it doesn't actually need to be a major event that happens every single time, but somebody, Joey, you could make a comment, especially in a virtual world, right? Mm -hmm. Via email or that Mm -hmm. I receive in a way that you didn't mean, but it reconfirms a negative belief that I have about myself. Yes. So that's why I said earlier, our brain's going to see, feel, and hear the world based on our belief. Yeah. Yeah. So if I believe you don't like me, and you send an email and you you mention a couple of people in the email about what they did that you liked. Uh, you didn't mention me. I'm going to see that as, oh, see, Jen doesn't like me. Now, it may not have any intentionality in that direction at all. There may be several people you didn't mention, but that's how I'm going to see the world. And unfortunately, we often see when people are struggling, especially with bosses, that they create those kind of belief systems and the boss may not have any knowledge of it, mm-hmm. not be seeing it that way at all, but that's how they start to see it. And then consequently their world will constantly reinforce it. Yeah. So how do we use that same neuroplasticity? How do like, how do we use it to change our habits and our beliefs? Because I assume that as much as it works for us in the negative, it works also in the positive if we that's let right. it, if we allow it to. <laughs> no, absolutely. And that's the thing. It's not as complicated as people would have you believe. So when we were looking at this from the perspective of psychology or psychiatry, it can feel daunting, you know, like, oh, wow, to get someone to change that perspective may take lots of counseling and lots of, of therapy, et cetera. What we look when we look at it from the perspective of neuroplasticity, it's different because we know 
and neuro neuroscientists will tell you anywhere from 14 days to 254 days is what <laughs> most of the research will tell you it can take to change a neural pathway, right? All beliefs are neural pathways that we've yeah. developed in our brain. So if so I'm why, willing, why 14 to 254? That's the number. Of, those are the research studies that you've seen. You know, some will tell you that short and, and all through that, there's, there's several research, 21 days, 32 days, yeah. there's, there's several studies. The longest one I've seen is 254 days. Okay, got it, got it. Got it. So somewhere in there, depending <laughs> on who's right, uh, your brain will change a neural pathway if you consistently create a new pathway. And what that means, in essence, is something as simple as I'm not good enough. And you want to change it to I am good enough. Like that's the simple shift. Your brain's going to go, no, you're not as soon as you say it, but you just keep saying it. And what you're doing in essence is you're building a new pathway brick by brick, and you are reducing the efficacy of the old pathway brick by brick. You're taking one out of here and you're putting in here and you're doing that daily. And you're doing it every time you notice that you have the sense of I'm not being, I'm not good enough. And you just do that and you do it consistently. And over time, Someday, that road's going to be thicker, stronger, more effective, and you're going to wake up and go, actually, you know what? I feel like I am good enough. Hmm. It's not ego. It's not a flag you wave. You just redirected that neural pathway into a new direction. That's it. And, and, and that's the beauty of neuroscience. That you can do it by just practicing that. You don't even have to worry about the emotions catching up, the past experience of the why it's there in the first place. You don't have to do any of that. If you do this new process, eventually you're going to wake up and go, okay, I am good enough. And that's the shift. And, and so this is what you're describing, kind of the foundational science behind micro steps and yes. why micro steps work, which I think sometimes people are like, I have this huge problem to solve and you're telling me to solve it by starting small. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but it actually does. So can you talk about like, talk about micro steps, yeah. what they are and why they're so, I mean, I think you just described why they're so effective, but let's talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I read a book years ago, it was 1978, so I'm 18 years old by a guy named Stuart Emery. It's called Actualizations. He said something that stuck with me. He said, small steps done consistently create major impact. And that really landed in my head. And fast forward to when we started with Thrive and looking at how we wanted to help people make behavior change. We, we called it micro steps, right? And we started working with a guy named BJ Fogg, mm -hmm. who has a book called Tiny Habits. And he has a model he calls the BMAP, right? Uh, and behavior equals motivation, ability, and prompt. And we, we BJ and I have had a lot of fun in this whole concept of, of doing small things. But he, he said something that I really love, which was, you know, it doesn't matter how small it is. So you, you want to start exercising and you've tried a lot and it seems to always fail after a period of time. He said, start with one push-up, and your brain's going to go one push-up. That's not enough. He said, no, just do one. If you do more, great, but get down and do one. 
And what I've learned is there's two elements to when we're trying to create a, a new habit. One is to, to you know, go down and, and do the one push-up, but the other is what happens when you do. Because most of our brains have learned and adapted to the idea that we say we're going to do something and then we don't. Mm. And when we don't, we actually stop believing in ourselves. Our confidence to do it, our self-esteem in terms of doing it goes down. And so if you can have this idea of motivation, this is something I want to do, right? So I do want to exercise. You really do? Yes. Why? Well, because I, I want to be around for my grandkids, right? Something like that, right? Okay. And now I really have motivation. Ability. Can I do one push-up? Yes. Right. Is there opportunity for me to do it? There is. Great. And then what's the prompt? What's going to get me to do it? And you have to decide what that is. If it's, if it's, uh, you know, whether it's a, an alarm that goes off, whatever it is. You, but as long as you do the one push-up, he said, you start to build the field in your brain, this field of, 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 of like fertile, I can do change. I can make this happen. And we, we start to believe in ourselves again. If I do my one push-up every day, I'm going to believe that I'm a person that does my, my exercise. And that's what you're building. Forget about building a new body. Build a new brain where your brain believes in yourself. You trust yourself. You are keeping your work with yourself. So your confidence is going up. Now, most days you do one push-up, you're going to do three. You're going to do five. You may even do ten. But do the one. That's, your, that's the baseline. And that's how you actually start to create this new neural pathway that says, one day, I'm an exerciser. Once you've connected the neural pathway, then adding more exercise becomes easy because you've already now built the habit. So goal is build habit first, then put all of the things you want to do on top of the habit. And so what do you say to the people that say, well, if it isn't big or disruptive or painful, (laughs) then then is it worth doing? Well, yeah, because you gotta you gotta say I'm doing the one push up for the big game, right? I'm right. doing the one push up for the so, right? You know, if, if you, but that's the motivation, right? So the motivation is I'm doing the one push up because I want to be, you know, healthy for my grandkids, right? That's the motivation. Uh, you got to have that. If you don't have motivation, if it's a should, then it's not going to work. Hmm. So that's the key element: is why do you want to do this? Uh, and that's why people go, oh, I want to do it because I want to have a great body for summer. So they get the body at summer. And then as soon as summer's over, they're off. Right. right. Body, right. body goes back. So you got to have longer term motivation if you want it to sustain. So can you give us some favorite micro steps, especially ones around kind of changing our mindset? Yeah, I'll give you a couple that that work really well. One is journaling, you know, end of night. Mm. And the reason why journaling works is that you do a reflection on your day and the reflection may go back. You may go back on your day and you go, you know what, in my meeting with Jen, I wasn't feeling good enough. I wasn't feeling valuable. I wasn't feeling like I could share my point of view that, you know, she may doubt, you know, whatever it was I was going to say. I felt it a little bit at the time, but in my reflection, I'm going to have more awareness of that. And, and in that reflection, that's a moment where I say, okay, the mindset I want to have there is that I am valuable. Mm. 
And next time I go into that situation, I'm going to go in with a mindset that I'm valuable. But if I start to you know, feel that old mindset kick in that I'm not valuable, I'm going to, I'm going to re reframe it in the moment. And it won't work every time, but at some point it will start to stick. So journaling in the evening gives you that reflection of the day where you can start to insert, hey, here's what I'd like to do different. Then when you go into it next time, your brain's going to have that awareness, right? Simple awareness is often curative. And so if you can just pay attention, uh, you, you'll, you'll get better. So journaling has a great effect there. And the other piece that can really work from a microstep perspective is to really call out what is the, the limiting belief I have. Hmm. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. You know, I'm not smart enough. Whatever you, you decide it is, what's the opposite? The opposite is, is very literal. If it's I'm not good enough, the literal translation to that is I am good enough. And, and so you, you start to, to create a practice where every time you experience that I'm not good enough, you, you shift it in your head. Will you do it every time? Maybe not, but you, you're, you're saying that that's the way you want to be. And every time you do that, it starts to, again, redirect the brain. And then you might even do a list of what are the, the negative paradigms you say to yourself. So you can just kind of call them out. And once we name these things, we often can become much more, um, we can take much more ownership over them when we name them. And then write your opposites. So you have them already there. What's the opposite paradigm I'd like to be focused on? Those three things can be uh, effective in terms of just starting to shift the whole process. I wrote all three of them down. <laughs> <laughs> and then I want to talk about some of your personal favorite micro steps because obviously well-being is so interconnected. It's not just about mindset, but sleep, movement, um, and then one personally for me, because it's one of my challenges, what's, what are some good, uh, micro steps around like stress and anxiety reduction? Oh, okay. Good. I got some good ones there. Sleep. I am a good sleeper. I have, I, I flipped from my old mindset of I'll sleep when I'm dead, you know, which is when I was <laughs> coaching in the NFL, I had to change that. And, uh, so I, I, I'm in bed at nine o'clock a lot of nights. I mean, I'm in bed that early. Uh, but I do get up early, so it, it was it's it's important, and that and that means for me during the pandemic in particular, I, I got off social media. Um, mm. I literally stopped all of that um, because I was on screen for sometimes ten hours in a day doing doing right. uh, webinars. Um, but be careful about your evening uh, screen time, um, and that yeah. includes televisions, any TVs. type any type of screen. TV far away from you is not doesn't have the same blue light impact as uh, other devices. But the thing with TV is you have to make sure you're reducing stress at night too. So if you're watching, you know, the news, Squid Game, so the news <laughs> or something like that, like no, no, not not a good use of of your time. Yeah. So yeah. that that part's important. Um, I tell people if you look at Stanford Medicine's research. You move three times a week for 20 minutes each. It not only is it great for the body, but it's even better for the brain. Mm. The brain stays more resilient uh, when it gets that level of movement. And that means like a brisk walk. You can do a lot more than that, but at least get a brisk walk in makes a big difference uh, in your brain. So I bike ride. That's my my thing. So I get that going 
more than three times a week, but, but at least three, which is critical. And then stress reduction. I'll tell you, number one stress reduction tool uh, comes from the Navy SEALs. Uh, they, they call it box breathing. And it's a, a technique where you actually breathe in a very specific way. It takes your brain out of the sympathetic nervous system where stress is into the parasympathetic nervous system where relaxation is in about one minute. So when you find yourself stressing, what, uh, what Stanford discovered is a deep exhale is actually the most ideal thing to slow the brain down when it starts to go into the amygdala response or that, that um, stress response. So you just blow out through your mouth, completely empty your lungs. You just until your, your lungs are empty. Then you breathe in, which now becomes the box breathing technique, counting to four. You hold it for four. You exhale for four. And then Navy SEALs will hold it again for four. So it's like you're imagining this box. And then you start over again. And you do that just one minute. So it's like three cycles. And you completely shift your brain. You'll reduce the stress. So we, we know stress is part of life. You can't get rid of stress. But cumulative stress is where the danger is. And that's our goal. Yeah, I mean, for me, it is um, in those moments, especially of kind of acute stress or anxiety, when I actually remember to do some deep breathing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing the impact that it has. But the key for me is to actually remember, remember. oh, wait, this actually works. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, Joey, thank you for your time today and for sharing your wisdom with us always. Um, it's I, I always learn something from you and take so much away to reflect on and try in my own life. So I really appreciate your time today. Such a pleasure, Jen. Anytime. I'm so grateful Joey could be with us today to talk about this important topic. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. The information, opinions, and recommendations expressed by guests on this Deloitte podcast series are for general information and should not be considered as specific advice or services.